You're listening to Rheumatology Republic in Conversation. I am Ben Falkemeyer. Today is a special episode as we're celebrating a win for the rheumatology community with Professor Flavia Cicutini receiving a Member of the Order of Australia Award in this year's Queen's Birthday List. Flavia is a Professor of Clinical Epidemiology at Monash and she's Head of Rheumatology at Alfred Health. She received the award for her contribution to musculoskeletal disease research. Flavia is renowned for using MRI to improve the assessments of joint health. And in 2019, her article on the effect of breakfast on weight and energy intake ranked 50th in the Altmetric Top 100 globally. We caught up with her to celebrate the award and find out more about her career and what makes her tick. Flavia, congratulations on becoming a member of the Order of Australia. Thank you very much, Ben. It's a great honour and I see this as a great honour also for the group of people that I've been fortunate enough to work with. When you finished your PhD, did you know you wanted to work in rheumatology? I did my medical degree and then did rheumatology. And while I was completing my physician's training, I did a PhD. And in fact, I was fortunate enough to do the PhD at Walden Eliza Hall under the supervision of Professor Andrew Boyd and Professor Gus Nossel. And that was a laboratory project, which I absolutely loved. But it struck me at the time that maybe getting into more clinical research would be a path where I could make a better contribution. So I got an NHMRC postdoc to go to London and was fortunate enough to do a Master of Science in Epidemiology at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and also to work with a fantastic chap called Professor Tim Spector at St Thomas's Hospital on a twin study of osteoarthritis. And so I was already a rheumatologist and when I pivoted to doing clinical research rather than laboratory research, working on the twin study of osteoarthritis was really what set me on the path to working in osteoarthritis, which is where my research first took me. It's funny because I was going to ask you how influential was your time studying in the UK and I think you've just answered it for me. The way we assess joints and even clinically was just to do an x-ray and say, oh, your knee looks terrible. But it's so insensitive that you can't measure small change because if you're trying to develop drugs or particularly trying to develop new treatments, if you look at an x-ray, it's such a crude assessment of the joint that it's almost impossible to measure change. And so after coming back from London, I spoke to Stephen Stuckey, who was the head of of radiology at the Alfred and said, look, surely, Stephen, we can do better than something as crude as an x-ray. So he said, oh, well, MRI's around. Why don't you have a look at that? But MRI at the time was just starting. And so most people were using it mainly for important things like the brain. There was nothing in the literature really about using MRI and so I went from first principles we sort of did some MRIs looked at how much cartilage was left in joints because that's the structure you want to preserve we then got cadaver samples so at the time people were still losing their legs because of atherosclerosis and they were still doing some amputation. So we got some amputated legs, put them through the MRI machine, measured the cartilage from the MRI, then dissected out the cartilage in the anatomical pathology lab, worked out 
where the MRI was measuring the amount of cartilage and we found that that was the case and that was really then we were able to do some studies funded by the National Health and Medical Research Council and be able to show that you can measure progression of osteoarthritis over a couple of years, that that predicts worsening of knee pain, worsening of joint replacement and that has been the tool that we have now used to test different interventions. What you've just described, is that one of your proudest achievements? It was a central achievement because at the time, the idea was that if you could do that, you would then be able to sort of go hither and do lots of assessments of testing new drugs and stuff. But paradoxically, what it actually did was took us three steps backwards. The vision had always been that in the same way that bone mineral density is a useful surrogate marker for osteoporosis and fracture, we could use cartilage volume in the same way. When we started looking at MRI, you could measure lots of other different structures. Then most of the work that then happened over the next few years was to actually challenge our beliefs about, you know, for example, knee osteoarthritis being one disease, that it's in fact a number of different diseases with different drivers for the disease. And so we've had to rethink our whole understanding. And, you know, for example, one of the things that we found very early on in the piece is that everybody knows that obesity is a risk factor for knee osteoarthritis. And the idea was, oh, well, you're fat, you're carrying a lot of weight, of course the knee gets damaged but in fact the work that was done using the MRI measures showed that obesity affects joints like the knee in two ways there is the loading so for example if you carried a sack of a concrete that's 20 kilos you're loading the joint but obesity hits you with a double whammy because the metabolic inflammation associated with the fat that you carry also damages the joint so in fact damage is even worse so the MRI work was a major achievement because it has been the tool that we have used in a lot of clinical trials now but it has also helped us take a step backwards and unravel understanding what the causes of osteoarthritis are. And so more and more in medicine, we're seeing that you can't just throw a treatment at a person. You need to start to target treatments to those who are most likely to benefit. And so even for a single joint like the knee, then by understanding that there are different pathways or mechanisms for the damage to the knee in that person, you can start to target treatments to that person. Most of the work was being done at the knee, but we've also shifted to also looking at the hip and the back and other joints. And for example, it's now clear that the causes of hip osteoarthritis and the causes of knee osteoarthritis are not the same. Can you tell us a little bit more on that one? 
knee osteoarthritis is a very metabolically driven condition so that things like the low-grade inflammation associated with fat and obesity, things like hyperlipidemia, cholesterol, your cholesterol being elevated, early diabetes, are all significant causes of knee joints being in worse nick. And in fact, we've got a number of studies showing that if people have a poor circulation, that there is actually quite a lot of damage already happening, even at early stages to the knee joint. The hip itself is also impacted by things like obesity, but to a far lesser effect. One of the major drivers of hip osteoarthritis is if you've got any irregularities of the shape of the hip joint. So if you have a ball sitting in a socket and it's doing its business over many, 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 many years, if it's not perfectly aligned, it's likely to start to get some damage. You know, in the same way that if you have a door hinge that you open and close, the better aligned it is, the longer it's going to last. But although knee and hip osteoarthritis are both strongly genetically linked, the knee has this very strong metabolic inflammatory component to its cause, but the hip is much, much more about the shape of the bone with things like obesity probably just acting as an extra bad thing that happens but not a major early cause of it. You serve on a number of roles in the arthritis and research community and as chair and board members of international local committees and on the NHMRC committees and you perform editorial roles for journals in the MGA as well as advising on drug trials. How do you find the time? I think one of the things that happens is that so a lot of these roles are roles that evolve over time and it is important one to make a contribution but also to have a seat at table so that that you are able to increase the profile of areas that you're passionate about. I think there's two areas that I'm very passionate about. One is the musculoskeletal area, particularly the areas where we still don't have a lot of treatments, and that is, you know, osteoarthritis, chronic low back pain, conditions that cost a lot, cause a lot of disability, and also where I think we are still doing more of the same. So I think there's that area. And the other area that drives me, and it's one of the reasons for being on committees and stuff like that, is also mentoring early to mid-career researchers, making sure that we foster the new generation and don't let them fall between the cracks, which is a big concern. Is the concern that they are not going to continue researching? I think one of the challenges is how you keep funding people that are good with an established track record and how you make sure that as funding becomes tighter, as schemes change, that they're not inadvertently biased towards older established people, which is really important but not at the cost of people in their early to mid-career, which of course are our future. 
if we lose that group, there is no future. That sounds like an important message to get out there. Just on your own research, you seem to have balanced the need for clinical research that has an impact in hospitals, but also an ability to make the research digestible to a broader population. How do you strike that balance and what advice do you give to those early and mid-career researchers? I think research has to be about people working as a team. And I think that being able to work together with a group of people that you trust, you know, where people have a sense of fairness, I think that's a really important place to start particularly people that are fortunate enough to do clinical research. A lot of the work we do is informed by the needs that we observe. I suppose I would have argued that maybe I wasn't so great at pushing ideas forward and, you know, that I sort of tried to let my work speak for itself. But in the next few years, there are certainly some areas that I, I feel very, very passionately about that have come from our research that I don't think have maybe resonated as much as they should have. For example, I think we have a major problem with obesity and the impact of obesity on knee osteoarthritis and joint health. And interestingly, there's a massive focus on losing weight. But to me, that's a problem because we're shutting the, the door after the horse has bolted. And in fact, the clinical trials don't support losing weight that much because the damage has already been done. And yet paradoxically, in Australia as a community, adults put on half a kilo a year relentlessly. And there's very good evidence that gaining weight is associated with joint pain and damage. Yet we don't advise people to stop gaining weight. One of the things I'm keen to do in the next few years is really push some of these ideas. It's sort of challenge what we're continuing to do. And, you know, the definition of insanity is to keep doing the same thing over and over again and expect a different outcome. And I must say, I do wonder if there are still some areas where that's what we're still doing. And how do you balance your work life and your personal life? Life is tricky because, well, one of the mottos I've had is that you can have it all, but not all at the same time. I think in life, one has to quietly work out what you want out of it in terms of a career, your personal life, you know, family, if you want a family or kids or whatever. Often you've got to quietly work out where you want to be and often you have to cut corners for certain things because there are certain things that you can only do at certain stages in your life. I probably deep down am not super, super confident and so certainly in terms of having kids and raising the kids and that... I had incredible support and particularly encouragement, not encouragement, but complete acceptance that I would be able to maintain a career, even if it financially was difficult, you know, because we had help at home and that from my husband. And he was, he's someone who just assumed that I could do whatever I wanted to do. And I think that quiet assumption made it much easier for me to make some decisions I made early on in life. Flavia, thanks for joining us. It's been a pleasure having you on our podcast. Thank you for having me, Ben. 
Rheumatology Republic in Conversation is brought to you by the Moose Republic in Redfern, Sydney. Find out more at rheuma.com.au. You can catch our other episodes on Spotify or iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. Music by Roller.